This episode of Extra Crispy is brought to you by stevesleds.com. You know, as a musician, I began encountering LED lighting several years ago, and it's a pretty cool thing on stage lighting and concerts. And if you've been to any uh, big-name concert shows or even smaller shows at places like the House of Blues or Tipitina's down here in New Orleans, you have seen LED lighting. Uh, they, 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 it's become commonplace all over the place. I've even found in my own house that anytime a light bulb goes out, I'm replacing it now with LED bulbs instead of the incandescent ones. LED bulbs are better for the environment. They use less electricity. And now the price has come down quite a bit to where they're uh, more affordable. One of the cool things about LEDs, LED stands for light emitting diodes. That's my technical speak for the day. But LEDs are cool because they can go through the spectrum of lighting and create almost any color imaginable uh, by swirling through the spectrum. And this is kind of what got Steve into the LED business. Uh, he originally started designing these lighting systems for high-end aquariums. Because what's cooler than having tropical fish and coral in a tank than having this lighting that can go through the spectrum and bring out the blues and the reds and the yellows and all the uh, wonderful colors of the fish tank. But over the years, Steve's business has grown to where they have now a, a manufacturing facility right here in Covington, Louisiana, uh, where 90% of their materials are American-made raw materials of the highest quality, American-made tooling, and, and all this in their own manufacturing facility, which I have visited where, as I said in the previous episode, Steve is like a mad scientist creating new stuff all the time. And this is one of the things that I, I think is, is really cool about Steve. Uh, not only are you getting the highest quality products, but Steve is one of these creative types that is always coming up with better ways to design stuff. Nothing at Steve's LEDs is outsourced. So don't settle for lesser quality LED products made in China that sell for the same price because you will not find a brighter, better performing, or longer lasting LED system anywhere in the world at any price. So whether you're looking for LED lighting, controllers, horticultural lighting, or if you would like to just upgrade an, exist an existing system, visit stevesleds.com. And when you do, be sure to mention that you heard this on Extra Crispy. You will be satisfied. I guarantee it. Steve'sLEDs.com. It's extra crispy podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we feature an interview that I did on a trip a little over a week ago to Nashville, Tennessee. Now, this is only my second time in Nashville, um, but while I was going up there, I, I called my friend Mitch Pusson and said, Mitch, can you set me up an interview with anybody while I'm in town for the eclipse? So he set me up an interview with Jimmy Olander. And Jimmy Olander is known for a lot of things. He is a 71st member of the Grand Old Opry. He's famous 
for being the guitarist of Diamond Rio Country Band. And he's also a virtuoso of the double B bender guitar, which we're going to get into on this episode, which this is a real treat for any music geeks out there, guitar geeks, and was certainly quite a cool opportunity for me to have my son Ezra, who is learning guitar, to be there and get a little guitar lesson from Jimmy O. So let's go ahead and head to this podcast recorded in the home of Jimmy Olander in his studio. Uh, fascinating interview. I really enjoyed it a lot. So here we go. Jimmy O. Tell me a little about your story. Um, in which part? Well, which I don't part? Know. How, how did you How did you get here? How did you end up in Nashville? In Nashville, doing playing guitar and well, and all this yeah, stuff. you know, I mean, I've been I've been a musician forever. So um, four years old. For, uh, no, no, I, I started playing a uh, tenor guitar, an old Martin. It was a baritone ukulele, all mahogany guitar that my dad had, and he took. Uh, took lessons from a guy named Bill Peer up in Minnesota and it was these really interesting looking charts where they were the complete neck chord diagram of a you know like a baritone ukulele you know and they and they were all melody chord stuff right and it was like written so many beats over this chord so many beats over this chord stuff like you know bye really? bye blackbird you know five yeah. foot eyes of two you know blue because this guy was a tenor banjo player you know back in some of the orchestral stuff you know and uh in minneapolis so anyway i started playing on this on this guitar my dad said hey if you get good enough on this i'll buy you a banjo it's kind of a random thing i never said i wanted a banjo but for some reason that sounded great you'll buy me a banjo great so i became uh i started playing banjo and uh there weren't any four string banjo teachers around that's kind of a, a really dated period thing you know and right around that time was when deliverance hit oh god okay and all <laughs> well, the worst sudden, thing and well but the, but pick the five, up banjos cheap though huh well but five string banjo all of a sudden was oh, was yeah. crazy and i had i had got the earl scruggs foggy mountain banjo record and so i was a kid i started i think taking lessons when i was 11 and i took to it and just like you know a lot of type a musician types you know man i was even as a kid i was playing six, eight hours a day, every day, and like a sponge, and, you know, became really good and started teaching. So the, the story I took lessons from as a beginner, I went away for about a year, and I came back just before my, my 13th birthday and started doing the inter intermediate and advanced lessons I was teaching there. And I t taught there until I moved here uh, in 79, when I was 17. Wow. Yeah, so in Nashville, you know, as a bluegrass banjo player, which... You know, this is back in the in the heyday of Tom Collins and and a lot of stuff where artists and record labels were doing um, it's kind of a, somewhat similar to to today's culture where the producer had all the publishing on all the songs yeah. and they were doing um, they do an album and there'd be one single off of it and they do another and so they're doing a lot of vo volume really cheesy stuff you know syndromes were on the on the records and you know disco was having its influence on country music yeah. and it was pretty schlocky oh uh, and i and country and, music that's a bad combination well, and and it's and it's really not friendly for a guy coming to set the world on fire on banjo <laughs> in nashville so um i went to belmont college down here and and studied the music business and you know took up the guitar to make a living 
Wow. So, and, you know, I mean, there's, you know, sub-stories all through that, you know. Yeah. Once, once I got, got here and started started playing. So how, how does one, uh, well, at least, I mean, it's not a definitive answer, but how does one get in, just getting to Nashville is not enough. How do you get into the music business when you're back in the early 80s or whatever? Okay. Uh, well, um, so as a banjo player, um, there was this little steel player that taught ta- or talked me into dropping out of college and going playing in a regional country band, you know, and I bought a Telecaster and I had an amplifier and I did that. And so um, my life as a kid, you know, I learned this is all pre CDs and stuff like that. So I learned through transcription, dropping the needle on vinyl and, you know, banjo is, you know, people may think it's really hillbilly, but it's, there's also a lot of virtuosity there, and there's a lot of notes. And so I was trained to tra- transcribe stuff that went really fast, and it was really dense. So I had really good um, chops for that type of stuff. And so I did the same approach with guitar. I just transcribed stuff. Now, I c- wasn't a full guitar player, you know. I wasn't like, I'm going to create something, but I could regurgitate stuff. You know, and I could learn and transcribe and stuff like that. So I asked Jimmy to get out his banjo and give us some, an example of some things, and uh, he pulled out a number by John Philip Sousa and probably asked me to play along with him. Anybody who knows my music knows I'm not uh, exactly a bluegrass player, but I appreciated him inviting me into it, trying to hang on for dear life with him. <laughs> Paid by the note, Crispin. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Woo! If you can slow that down about halftime, I'm with you. I got it. Uh, Luckily, when I was playing guitar, a guy named Joe Glazer um, built my first Telecaster for me, and he built a double bender Telecaster. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I I was just thinking the the name Joe Glazer. I just, because I just watched the documentary like three months ago on the B-Bender with Joe Glazer um, and uh, maybe um, one of the guys from the Birds or something like that. I, I, there was a, a clip of... Clarence White, yeah. yeah. Clarence is actually one of these images on my floor. Oh. He's the guy with the goatee. So these are my That's three... Good. Yeah, these are my, <laughs> my three big heroes, Earl Scruggs, Ella Fitzgerald, and Clarence White. How does one even get a floor like this? This is it a was, fabulous floor. It, yeah, it was, it, was, it was complicated. <laughs> it was acid etched wow. in, so... Um, but so, so Joe had moved to Nashville and, um, and we met through a guy that I was playing a show out at Opryland with and, um, Joe, his first three guitars that he made, 
one of those was mine, and it was a double bender guitar. It was had the, had, a, had a pull string on the G and a pull string on the B. And can you explain to the listeners out there who mm-hmm. don't know? Yeah, understand absolutely. What a w- so on the shoulder strap, like a conventional guitar, the straps are attached to the body of the guitar, and they don't move. Um, on my guitar, and uh, you got a website, right? We'll, yeah. we'll take some yeah. pictures, okay, and we'll put them on the website cool. for yeah. you. Um, there are two two bender levers on the back of of the the heel plate where the neck attaches to the body, and that mechanism the sh- the shoulder strap hooks to one of the levers, and so when I push the guitar down, it activates that lever, and there's a mechanism that runs through the body and activates a a mechanism that raises the pitch on the third string alone. So it's not like a whammy bar where yeah. you can raise the pitch or lower the pitch on everything. So, and Joe's mechanism was really great because it minimally invasive to the guitar. It's just a very small channel from the back of the guitar to the heel plate. And it's got two of these on there. So I wear something that looks like a little keychain. So I can activate the shoulder strap by pushing down and activate the B lever by pushing the guitar away from me. So there are different combinations of um, diagonal stuff and box positions where you can lower one and raise the other wow. and do that type of stuff. If anybody's interested in, in doing this, I've got a YouTube channel, uh, The Jimmy O Show, and I did a deep dive on the Bender stuff and took one of the guitars away apart, and you can see the mechanism oh, cool. and stuff like that. So I watched a few of those clips. That, that was did fascinating. You? I... It looks like a lot of acrobatics. To was that a hard thing to? I mean, is it, is it something you picked up pretty easily, or it just fit you? Or <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because you know I'm I'm somewhat known as oh man you're that you're that double bender guy mm-hmm. you know or the modern string bender guy yeah. right. Um, Trying to say that without sounding too ego no, fantastic. You are. I'm just, you are. but you know, uh, I gotta be, be, you know, I'm not gonna be falsely modest about this. So um, I started playing those guitars. So I went from banjo to that. So there are a lot of guys, you know, they're conventional guitar players and they, man, I love what you're doing. I'm gonna get a B bender. How do I do this? Well, they've got all this history as a guitar player and then they get a B bender and they're trying to work this stuff in. Um, I started playing on a guitar with two benders on it, and that's kind of wow. part of my style. Yeah, um, it was interesting. One of my heroes, Albert Lee, great guitar player. We had uh, Joe had finished up a Strat for me when Albert was playing with the Everly Brothers, and they were rehearsing over at SIR, and we were like, "Man, let's take this Strat down to Albert and see what he thinks." And he was, uh, you know, "Oh, this is really cool," and you know, "This is your hero." And, course both of us are like what does albert think of of this guitar you know we've come up with and and he was like this is really cool but you know when i play these b benders i find myself thinking about when am i going to use it and how am i and it's very preoccupying he says so i don't usually play these very much you know for the guys with the guitar (laughs) but with me it's not necessarily that way yeah you know just that makes a lot of sense if that's what you start on I, i because i guess that's probably the like i I would think that at some point, if you're a, a great guitarist, that adding the B bender, it's kind of like starting over in a sense. Like it's not something where you can just immediately pick it up. And yeah, now I, I talk to a lot of guys that that um, come up to me, man. I want to start doing this. I've or I've got this guitar. Help me get going. You know, and my my advice for them is usually, you know, you've got a finite amount of mistakes that you're really going to have to make. And it's best to be aggressive with this 
and go for it. Don't, you know, pussyfoot around on it. Just make your mistakes, man. And some of these things, you'll find some really good kind of happy mistakes where you'll figure something out. It might be some complex harmony. You know, I've found out some stuff, you know, recently where I was, I was getting into some augmented stuff, some sharp fives and the sevens, and where I go, oh, man, this can work really nicely here in this one position, you know, and some more some whole tone stuff. Um, it was really cool. I'm still making those, those kind of fun little mistakes with the guitars after all these years. So um, now I've mentioned Joe, the guy that he's built me about, you know, five or six guitars that have benders on them. And we've put, we've put these double benders on. We even had one on a Bajo Sexto, which was Fender's version of the six-string bass. Um, bending the bending the bass strings and had it on a, a bass bender. Yeah, wow. a bass. Yeah, six string <laughs> bass. It's a Telecaster. Where it's, I don't. It doesn't have the benders on it now, but it's that that really long neck Telecaster up here. Okay, yeah. And you can see we actually mounted one on the back of this Parker Fly that there is not enough volume oh, yeah. on the body that you see. You see the yeah. mechanism back there. It's, yeah, it's a very much of a Frankenstein kind of thing. And we've actually put one on a lap steel. As well, put a telly neck on a lap steel and put the double benders <laughs> on it. I think Sonny Landreth actually has that guitar. Sonny Landreth. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Wow. It kind of slipped through my fingers and landed with Sonny. <laughs> I don't know if he still has it, but. Yeah. Well, it's in good hands, at least. Yeah. So, anyway, so part of it, <clears throat> part of the things working, working with Joe, making these guitars, and um, one of my strengths was work ethic and dedication. So as I was, you know, all of a sudden I dropped out of college. I needed to make a living. I was working really hard to try to learn how to play guitar. And I had this unique guitar. And so I was transcribing a lot of other contemporary guitar players and playing copy music and stuff like that. Um, my good fortune was that I had this buddy of mine who was super smart, very intuitive, Joe, that mentored me through some things where, you know, I would make make some studies, man, you're playing great, Jimmy, but you, you know, you sound like Brent Mason here. You sound like Brent Rowan here. You sound like uh, Phil Ball here. You know, you really need to think about what is your voice. Now I'm still a young guy and this, you know, I didn't really know what that meant, but uh, we had several, you know, they're, they're not musical things. They're intellectual conversations about style and about development, and I took that stuff to heart, and um, I tried to apply that and those concepts. And some of that came through harmonic structure, some of that came through phrasing, some of that came like through what, tone. What, could you give me an example of some of these conversations? Kind of what intellectually, like? Well, it was yeah, it was like it was like that. It was I mean it was just simple as as that you know where uh, session players coming because I thought I wanted to be a session player. He says, you know, session players, there, there is a part of a chameleon that you have to be a, as a session player, you know, because this song requires you to sound like this. This song requires you to sound like that. Um, the really great session players will do the chameleon thing, but they will also have their own voice. Okay, Phil Ball was one of these guys that had his own voice, and he was on a lot of hits. I don't know if you remember George Jones' classic, He Stopped Loving Her Today, oh, yeah. right? Well, that's Phil on that first verse. It's, it sounds maybe like a steal. Yeah. That's Phil doing all that stuff. And he I forget what other stuff he was doing. Uh, 
I think that's him doing the the phase shifter guitar on Good Old Boys from the Dukes of Hazard stuff. And really? it was that era. Yeah. And and Phil, but Phil had a sound, you know. Brent Mason, when he came and, and hit Nashville. I know you're familiar yeah. with Brent. Brent's got a sound, man. He's got that telecaster chicken picking thing, and it's it sounds like Brent. Reggie Young, another guy, when he did all this super cool strat groove things, you know, they all had some chameleon. They were playing appropriate to the tracks. But they had a sound. Yeah. And that was one of the things that Joe was trying to express to me, um, that it was in, that I needed to have my own voice. So when somebody needed a flavor like that, they would call, and I would show up, and I would play me, not somebody else. Yes. So um, I'm proud of the fact that I got it, yeah. and I got it early, because I think that's that's one of the the big compliments that I get from people is, man, when I hear this record, I know exactly who's playing. Yeah. And uh, and it's now, there are times in my life and, and, and in my career where it's almost sounded caricature. You know, it's like a character. I mean, it definitely sounds like, wow, okay, I've heard that before, you know. I try really hard to not repeat myself harmonically, but the style is usually there. Yeah. Um, and it's good, and that's the, but that's my A stuff too. You know, if I show up and I give them my A stuff that sounds like me, they're like, "Yeah, it's definitely going to be by my B stuff to sound like somebody else." Yeah. You know, and I have, I have been hired as a as man. You're a good guitar player. Let's get Jimmy Olander to come in there, and immediately they're going, "Well, can you do that thing like Brant? You know, can you?" I was like, "Man, why did you not call Brant?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're all here in Nashville. Yeah. first banjo record was Foggy Mountain Banjo. And uh, Earl wasn't just the first, but he is actually, you know, the greatest. Yeah. And he sounded the best. And um, it's interesting that that he also had this amazing career, you know, did a bunch of TV stuff, you know. Uh, Flatt and Scruggs had their own TV show. Plus, he was Earl uh, on the, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah, that's and, probably where most and, people know him. Yeah, would know, know Earl... Uh, but but he is kind of the man, and and still to this day, you know, traditional banjo is all based on Earl Scruggs. You know, it's it has not, nobody's reinvented this to where he is obsolete. They all start with yeah. Earl, and and can and some guys never get out of that. There's actually, the Earls of Leicester, Jerry Douglas and Sean Camp, and these guys are out. out uh, Earls of Leicester are out touring right now and they're contemporary, you know, bad to the bone musicians and they're doing stuff in the style of Flat and Scruggs right now. Really? Charlie okay. Cushman is doing his Oh, it's great. They're the Grammy they won a Grammy this past year. I don't know if you know Jerry Douglas, the yeah. Dobro player. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, he's in the band Sean Camp, uh hit songwriter and major knucklehead buddy of mine is is the lead singer. Charlie Cushman's playing banjo and man, they sound they are doing new material in this in the style of flattened scruggs 
Wow. And they actually dress up like Flat and Scruggs. It's, it's really pretty campy, <laughs> but it's actually done really well. Yeah. yeah. Now, I didn't realize uh, until a few years <laughs> ago, um, I, I watched that um, documentary, uh, Bella Fleck, Throw Down Your Heart, where he went to Africa. Have you seen that one? Mm-hmm. I have. I'm, I'm aware of it. I yeah. haven't seen it. I, I had no idea until I watched that that the banjo was even an African instrument. It was, like, yeah, that was the origin. Yeah, and, and I think it came over via slave ships. And, yeah, you know, it's I think it's a lot associated with Appalachia, mm-hmm. but uh, that's that's where it came from. Yeah, that was a, that was a fascinating thing to see, kind of Bella playing with African musicians and kind of finding this commonality, and it, it was it was very interesting. Yeah, and the sound of the that particular style of banjo. And stuff in some of the very uh, early banjos, some a lot of them were fretless and had gut strings, and it was just a completely different, different vibe. So good, but you know, it's it's come a long way. Bell is definitely charging onto new territory all the time. Okay, so so you talked about your your first um, <clears throat> yeah. So Earl Scruggs, Earl Scruggs, Earl then... Scruggs, yeah, and and a, and a cast of thousand banjo players that have followed him sure. that I studied. Yeah, you know, great stuff. I actually, I actually went from a traditional banjo player to being very progressive, um, uh, which is which is kind of not really in vogue. The traditional stuff is as always hung there, and I think is probably much more. Bluegrass is kind of on fire these days, and and the very much traditional players playing right now in the style of Earl and J.D. Crow. Uh, so, and then I've got Clarence White on the floor, and Clarence was... Um, so if, are you familiar with Clarence at all? Yeah, the, in the birds, right? Well, or, it, well, actually, was, Clarence was a bluegrass guitar player. Yeah. Clarence was uh, the main influence of Tony Rice, who is considered you know, one of the greats of all time, and, and Clarence was uh, Tony's hero. Wow. And actually, the, the guitar that Tony Rice... Con- uh, refers to as the antique is Clarence's former guitar. He plays it to this day. And uh, Clarence had just this wonderful style. And he was in the Kentucky Colonels, which were was one of the bands um, that uh, the Darlings, and then I forget what they were actually called, but he and his brother Roland White were on the Andy Griffith show. And so if you'll see two okay. small guys small stature guys black haired doing one of the bluegrass bands with with the darlings that was clarence on there okay he had this great uh acoustic guitar thing actually had a great record it was clarence and peter roan i think jerry garcia and bill keith called mule skinner oh wow and when clarence was still playing a bunch of acoustic stuff he might have been in the birds at the time yeah and so he uh he and Gene Parsons from the Birds invented the string bender guitar, the B bender. Okay, yeah. Okay, that was the original B bender, and it was a Telecaster that they had mounted the mechanism on the back and put another shell on it. So it's kind of like the depth of an acoustic guitar, and that guitar is actually—it's like Clarence White's hands are in the in the hands of Marty Stewart right now. Marty has that guitar and plays it. Oh, I mean, wow. If you see Marty play, it's they call it Frankenstein, and that's that's <laughs> Clarence's old guitar, the original really? string okay. bender guitar. Wow. Yeah, and anyway, Clarence's uh, the string bender stuff is cool, you know. But like what we were discussing earlier, double bender stuff in me, it's actually more about my style and and phrasing and stuff. Well, Clarence had style for days, and his phrasing, the his cut of "Ode to Billy Joe" uh, uh, instrumental thing is just if you ever hear that, you'll go, "Okay, this is an original cat." Um, (laughs) The phrasing on that it's from a live record. 
um, that he did with, I think it's called Nashville West, and okay. it's the birds. Little club recording, and and you, I'm I mean, you'll gather a Spotify playlist right now of all these people you're mentioning. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, well, put yeah, put definitely put Clarence yeah. on there playing "Ode to Billy Joe" because it's the phrasing on that is just magical. Wow, wow. really cool. So, so I think the first two influences are, are a little bit more obvious. Now, Ella Fitzgerald, just the great, you know, greatest <laughs> singer ever. Yeah, greatest yeah. singer ever. I have a, I've got my, you know. Sitting around with your buddies, you know, you're playing music, you know, okay, top that, you know, what do you got? You know, let me turn you on to this music if you've never heard it before, yeah. right? Well, you know, my go-to song for what's the greatest vocal recording ever is Round Midnight by Ella oh, Fitzgerald. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's technically amazing. It's emotional. Um, the sound of her voice and then what she does you know, she was a jazz musician. She wasn't yeah. a just a standard singer. She wasn't just a pretty face. And uh, the outro of Round Midnight, when she goes, the band hits a big diamond, and then she sings through, um, she sings through some changes. They'll hit another thing, and she'll sing through some changes. I mean, it's just like okay, check please. That's the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, do do you find it in your guitar play? As her, as an influence, do you find that making its way kind of into the way you approach guitar? No, or I think it's, more it's, a... my, it's my appreciation for Ella. And, yeah. you know, so I've spent a lot of time in the country music industry. Well, when I pleasure listen, I, you know, I don't care to listen to country music. Yeah. Um, I like to listen to things that are going to, I can bring into country music and bring into my style and, you know, yeah. try to, try, you know, Feed me a little bit, yeah. Um, since I do so much country music and so much stuff that is really commercial country music, sure, too. it's not avant-garde. I am not one of yeah. the cool guys, right? You <laughs> yeah. know, I'm a meat and potatoes working guy. Yeah. So, um, so the things that I appreciate, you know, are actually alternative and are from you know what I want to listen to is yeah. not what I do for a living. Yeah. So you go from. Banjo player, Minnesota, you make it to Nashville, mm -hmm. pick up the guitar, pick up a double B-bender guitar. Yes. Then eventually you end up in this little band called uh, Diamond Rio. Mm -hmm. How'd that happen? Well, I, you know, I was on the road with some other artists uh, before then and thought I wanted to be a journeyman, journeyman session player. As it turns out, I learned by doing sessions that I did not want to do that. Um, and the reason that I didn't want to do that, it like well, so so we're in, we're sitting here with Ezra's in the room with us and our and my buddy Mitch Pusong. I'm about community. I'm about friends. Okay, Mitch and I are big running. I don't know how many runs we do together, but I like to do stuff with friends. And this is a little ridiculous here because I found out like y'all both do like these ultra marathons, like fifty miles. Well, he's my senior for the ultra oh, marathon. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Gra Grasshopper has become sensei in our relationship for sure. Um, the offer was made to me last night when we we pulled into Nashville that or, or Franklin that uh, if I wanted to join him for this early morning run, and I, I, th that was extended to me. I was like, no, I'm going to let you guys. <laughs> You're so generous. <laughs> well, you should. You know what? Tomorrow's another day, brother. <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving after the eclipse. Oh, 
nicely played. <laughs> or I would. <laughs> nicely played. Uh, so anyway, uh, session stuff, you know, you show up and uh, big money is being spent, right? And there's an artist you meet a lot of times, the artist, hey, this is your guitar player today. Jimmy's here to play, play guitar. And you meet the drummer and you meet the bass player and you guys get in there and, you know, immediately ensemble and uh, charts are written and songs come down and stuff like that. And you leave that. I've got no connection to these people. Yeah. You know, you do a lot of sessions and you're kind of, you know, have have a lot of friends that now you're working with and stuff like that. But it's <laughs> but it's a very individual approach. And it's and there's a lot of hustle that goes on, on with that. And, you know, you pretty much take everything that comes your way whether you're working like tons and tons and tons and have no quality of life just because if you start turning things down they hire this guy well this guy's good man we're in nashville there are guitar players everywhere and so you know that can get out of control and um and we as we had talked earlier about style that's not a big part of that you know i not i don't show up to be an individual on those sessions I show up to, you know, respect the material, respect the artist. You know, if they need an identifiable thing, come up with a motif or something like that. But don't make this the Jimmy O show. You yeah. know, I really have to. And, and you know what? I like the Jimmy O show. You know what? I like doing what I like doing. Yeah. So um, when I met the guys in Diamond Rio, um, it was, we were actually the Tennessee River Boys at the time, and they were doing a show out at Opryland, the theme park, and it was very much, we're the youth of America, and we're playing 25 minutes of, of hits, and we're doing this show six times a week. And I'd already been out on the road with some, some art, hit artists that were having you know, hit records and stuff like this. This was way beneath me. I was, you know, I was too, way too cool for this, but man, I needed the money. I took the gig. I was going to be in the, this thing for the, for the Opryland season for three months. Well, now I'm, this is 33 years later. Yeah, I'm still doing this gig. It turns out that these guys were wanting to leave the park. They were wanting to write original material, and they were wanting to get a record deal. And uh, that sounded great. And it just so happened that they gave me all the freedom to do with our style what I wanted to do and actually encourage me to kind of be the instrumental voice of the band. And we have, I've got some, some incredible musicians that I work with, our piano players. Outrageous. And however, I, man, it's, it's interesting. Arranging and doing the music for Diamond Rio, I figured it out early on that I had quick ideas for, for motifs and musical hooks and stuff like that. And if I came up with the idea, I didn't have to learn the piano part on guitar that he had to learn the guitar part on piano and the mandolin yeah. player. And I don't think that they necessarily knew what I was doing, but I was like going, oh, man, I'm going to play the positions that feel good to me and sound good to me. <laughs> and then th it would all shake down. And you know what? I, that established early, and we wow. still do it that way. That's cool. Yeah, so it, was, it wasn't necessarily... Oh, I think this would be the greatest <laughs> thing for the music. It was like, hey, man, this will be a little easier. It, it's funny you say that, because uh, uh, I'm... I'm my main instrument is piano, but growing up out in West Texas, uh, when I first started getting into music as a teenager, um, when I first learned the pentatonic scale, it was probably about 12 years old, and uh, I'd been playing for a little bit, but, um, you know, growing up in Texas, 
kind of grow up listening to a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan and stuff like that. Okay. So I would actually like try to figure out how to transpose Stevie Ray Vaughan licks to the piano. And that, so he, my first influences on the piano were actually Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, and, and folks okay, like this. So, you know? so as a yeah. result, is your piano playing very original sounding then, right? Well, you know, I'd like to think so. Well, Jimmy, just tell me, is it? Is <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot of that stuff. Okay, so I'm a banjo player, right? Yeah. Well, I do lots of open string stuff on the guitar, and that partly differentiates me from the other guys that play just, you know, single note, same string. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of string skips and a lot of stuff, and that sounds a little bit different. And it's just banjo technique transposed to the guitar. Yeah. And having that influence sounds differently. And some listening to some of the stuff that I was listening to, I was... When I first started learning to play electric guitar, I went from banjo to a Telecaster. Telecaster, with that that bridge pickup, is so bright. Mm -hmm. And for an acoustic musician who is used to having the sound develop out of an acoustic instrument before it hits your ear, that bright Telecaster was really harsh and was yeah. really difficult for me to get to get a, a sound out of my hands to be to be forgiving enough for me to play. So it was shocking. So I was playing on the bass pickup, a or the, the neck pickup a lot, and playing a lot of Leon Rhodes stuff, who was the Texas Troubadours yeah. guitar player. I don't know if you've heard any of the Texas Troubadour instrumental records, but it's just incredible. Putting that on my Spotify playlist. Yes, put that on their Spotify playlist. Uh, Leon Rhodes and Buddy Charlton. That was the guitar and steel of the Texas Troubadours back in the day. And Leon, to, to this day, is one of my heroes. And uh, Leon eventually... Um, became a, st a staff guitar player at the Grand Old Opry and played on the the TV show Hee Haw for, for years. Hee Haw, you're and, taking it way back. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and what well, we did, Hee Haw, man. I stood in the really? I stood in the cornfield and oh, set wow. our hometown. I remember watching that when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> Crispin, my pal. <laughs> now I'm, I'm not now, gonna become. Now, now, now I'm, I'm gonna become Mr. Olander. I was listening to you. <laughs> Now, now I'm really impressed. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah, I was in the cornfield. So, uh, well, anyway, so this is cool. You know, the the cool thing about what's happened to me in my in my career is I I love music. I still love music, and there are so many. I'm in Nashville, and there are so many heroes of mine that are still alive and still walking around. I remember uh, I've been a member of the Grand Old Opry since '98, and that was a really cool thing. But what's really cool is the fact that I met Leon Rhodes when he was a staff guitar player at the Grand Old Opry, wow. my hero, and I got to gush on him a little bit, and, and you know, because he, you know, met me. I was coming out there with some big hits, you know, and being this guy with this crazy looking mullet and doing playing all this stuff, right? And so he's like, "Hey, man, sound pretty good," you know. And I was like, "Leon, you don't understand, man. I've learned, yeah, you know, back wow. in Tulsa and all in Honeyfingers and all these songs that you and Buddy Charlton did." And the next time I saw him, uh, he, Jimmy, I got something for you. And he went and had made a V, so this is how long ago this been, a VHS tape of all of the instrumental stuff from the early in Ernest Tubb shows and dubbed just the instrumentals for me and handed me this thing of he and Buddy Charlton killing it. Wow. And, um, yeah, I don't know that, that they were necessarily doing it, but... It sounded like they were drinking some coffee back in those days <laughs> or something else that went a little faster. Else. I'm not sure. So, uh, man, flying, ripping and roaring. It's just, and it's great, mm. great, great, 
I would I would call them cow jazz players. You know, they're yeah. country jazz players. Yeah. Incredible. Wow. I and I, I love that uh uh like me and Mitch were talking about this morning, like the, the gypsy jazz and, and stuff. Mm. And because I've I've got friends who I'm I'm a big fan of it. It's just so far out of my understanding, but I've just got mega respect for because it like guys I know that can play gypsy jazz, they can play anything basically because it's such a it's interesting. It's interesting that the technique of gypsy jazz. So I've got a, got a buddy of mine, Sean Tubbs, incredible guitar oh, yeah. player. You know Sean? Yeah. Um, I don't know him. I know of him. But. So and Sean, I knew him as this very contemporary electric guitar player, um, and I didn't know his history. And uh, one Christmas, a bunch of guitar buds were all doing the Twelve Notes of Christmas challenge. So we one guy would post online a a Christmas song. And they would tag all these other guys that they'd been challenged to come up with, you know, a Christmas song and cut it in, you know, 48 hours and put it out there and name somebody else. And so all of these guys are contributing uh, stuff. And all of a sudden, Tubbs comes out with um, Christmas Time is Here in Gypsy Jazz style, like a Gypsy oh. Jazz style ballad, you know. And wow. I was like, it, and it was stunning. And I was goofing around with... I'd have never thought of Sean Tubbs doing... That. that's oh and it's not like it's not like he's pretending to be Django it's like he was Django wow and I was pretending to be somebody that had heard Django <laughs> and I think I was really doing something until I heard him do that and I was like holy moly Tubbs that was incredible wow. and he goes yeah he says you know I, I don't do that very much and he says man I must have been drinking some red wine that night because I wouldn't usually do that drink more red, red yeah. wine <laughs> but but anyway Sean says uh this to your point of if you can do that, you can do anything. He says, you know, he says, I had to back off on that stuff because the technique is so different in the double, double down. There are so many downstrokes and there are stuff that is not sweep picking, but is rest stroke that seems like a sweep where you're just sweeping through arpeggios and stuff like that. But you have to hit a downstroke on a string, rest on the next string before you play it, as opposed oh, to wow. sweeping through ring. You got to... and he says, you know, it was just really difficult to play that well. And he, you know, he's a perfectionist to play that well and then do a contemporary gig and bounce back and forth. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I was like, wow, okay, I get it. Well, it seems like you're still doing it all right, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you're doing. Yeah. So you've been in Diamond Rio 33 years? I, th yeah, something, something like that. Something like long, that. Long, long time. Long enough. Long enough to where, you know, I am Mr. Olander to Mr. a lot Olander. to to these young artists, you know, and or I met, you know, my mom took me out to to hear you in so 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 and so, Mr. Olander. I'm always cringing, like, man, was I nice? What was, you know, what was going on in my life at the time? You yeah. know, um, which is a you know, which is a good life lesson, actually, that you know, we're all just kind of living our lives, yeah. you know. And have no thought about meeting people and doing things that we do. And I don't care. It doesn't have to be on stage or anything yeah. like that. That, you know, that people are watching. Yeah. You know, your kids are watching what you do at home. And it's, and it, it has definitely come with, you know, some, I feel a little bit of that responsibility. Like, luckily, I'm a pretty nice guy, you know, and I don't really, yeah. not a lot of third person talk. I'm not flying off the handle a lot. So, you know, it's all right.
Now, now tell me about personal space. I hear you you love being hugged. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Touched yeah. and stroked. It's all right. Man. <laughs> We're going to hug it out here at the end, Crispin. <laughs> man. Ah. Uh, Dude, you know what? I, we were t- I, was t- I was on a run with some friends this morning, and they were busting me on this because this is, I, I've got a friend whose who husband just passed away, and I went over and I visited her, and, um, uh, and her family was all in town, and I went over, I gave her a hug, you know, and I, and I hear this voice, you know, muffled, and I go, I can't believe you're hugging me right now. <laughs> And we were talking about that this morning, and she's like, you know, what is, and, and her brother was saying, what's the deal? Is that from meet and greets, you know, and you just are over-hugging people? And I, and I remember my mother, overhearing my mother telling somebody that was exclaiming about my personal space, it's mostly touch issues, and, she, and my mother saying, you know, I had to give him a bottle in his car seat, so it's been, you know, <laughs> this is not a learned behavior. Are, are you an only child? No. Okay, see, I've, I've got, it, it's funny, because I've, I've been accused of being an awkward hugger, because, it, you know, I'm kind of just, so I, I feel you, I feel you on that, well, so. And so, and so, but I'm an only child, so I didn't know if that was the issue, so I'm just trying to find some commonality here. This uh, is some, this is, this is like God's big, you know, funny little, little hoax on me, because Diamond Rio does a meet and greet every night, and we've got these country <laughs> music fans, man. <laughs> And, and there are people that I have no idea who they are. And, hey, this is Jimmy. And the arms are wide open, and they're coming in for a hug. And I was like, wow, this seems so inappropriate. <laughs> and I've actually got like a little handshake block that I try to use and maneuver. And it works, you know, maybe I'm saying 63% of the time. <laughs> but, you know, it's, that's, that's if you're my, a musician that's in New York, it'd be easier. Yeah, that's my when, And what is your problem, Chris? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, I'm and, and and I'm a pastor on the side too. So oh, so that's great. So yeah, like I, I get people expecting hugs like all the time, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm accused of like I I mean I'll hug somebody, but it, I'm just never very at home in it. I don't know. I wasn't well, the, held much or something. I don't. Know. <laughs> uh, well, my friends that know me well, I will give them I'll give them a bump, but it's definitely touch and go. Touch and go. Well, hugs are much more valuable if you don't give them out all the time. That's what I kind of. It's That's you know, okay. it's kind of like cuss words. If you cuss all the time, your words don't have any any meaning. But if you don't cuss all the time, when you do cuss, it means something. Okay, so are you saying I need to hug less and cuss less? Is that what's going on? Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not think trying I'm to how, okay. tell you how to live your life. Okay. <laughs> so what in Diamond Rio? Yes, you. Um, I, I I have to imagine. So you're you're in a band longer than. Um, much longer than the average marriage in America um, yeah. can, can be expected. So mm-hmm. what are the joys about being with this group of people who you connect with musically? There is that, like you said, that community that music comes from. What are the challenges, though, that also go along with being the same well, group of people? Well, you know, with being with the same group of people is we know each other so well. And... and when something is pitched to the band, I already know the answers yeah. via email, or I already know the guys that aren't going to respond at all. You know, we know each other very well. Um, we have had uh, we've had conflict in the band, uh, but early on we did a couple of things that I thought was uh, smart of us to do. We signed an agreement amongst the partners that if you 
are fired by the band. It has to be unanimous. It were six pieces. It has to be a unanimous decision by five, and they have to buy you out. And if you quit, you walk with nothing. Wow. So we kind of, and we signed that agreement, and you, we tied ourselves together. So, you know, if you want to quit, you're really giving up something, and if we want you out of here, we're, it's going to cost us. Wow. That's, um, that's cool. And we've had, let's see how many, we've maybe had three or four personality interventions in the band. Um, we haven't had any drug and alcohol interventions, but we have had um, personality interventions where we, um, they always happened on the road. Um, and it was, we just shut the buses and trucks down and go into a hotel room and we're going to roll when we come out of here, you know, and it's usually five on one, wow. you know, and, uh, and it was, it's always worked out well, you know, it's only been, and if it's, is it the road that brings out the, the, the worst stuff in people? Well, uh, I think, I think success can do that. Yeah. So if you have dormant, um, you know, kind of odd things in your personality. And all of a sudden you go from, you know, being a relatively benign, you know, uh, presentation of a person to all of a sudden your jokes are funny or you're cute or, you know, you haven't changed at all, but that's the perception of people. You know, you can, you can, that will give you a sense of entitlement and these, these quirks in your personality, you'll let them go. And when you start looking around and, and you don't see very many peers and you see a lot of employees and people are working for you or making money off of you, you know, you'll let that stuff go. And, you know, if you're, if you're a prick, that will come out. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now luckily being in a band, we've, you've got five, in my situation, I've got five other peers, you know, and that helps. You know, and I think probably bands are a little bit more grounded than solo acts, you know. Just for that very reason of, can't imagine being a solo act and, you know, it's the emperor's new clothes. Everybody you look yeah. around is making something off of you and, you know, it's in their best interest for you to be happy and for them to indulge you and not necessarily always that way in a band. Yeah. When, when you look back over your career, what have been some of your favorite moments, uh, either with Diamond Rio or just other people? Because you, you're not a, you don't consider yourself... A, a session musician, isn't it sounds like, but you have played on plenty of other people's yeah. albums. Yeah, we've played on on stuff. You know what? It's been uh, I, one of the, one of the things that I enjoyed about the celebrity nature of. I got really into skydiving for a while, and um, you got like how many dives? I've been just under eight hundred. Wow! And uh, and just being a skydiving whore, I. I took my rig on the road and we did this promotion jumping with Jimmy and I would have a radio station come and pick me up and drive me to the drop zone where there would be a remote setup and contest winners and I would chase them out of the, out the plane uh, when they're doing a tandem and tag them in air and then just skydive all day long. Wow. And being, show, being a celebrity showing up at a drop zone, getting to jump with the best of the best um, skydivers there way over my head, which meant that my proficiency went up exponentially better than it would have had I just been a showing up, not knowing anybody. So there's actually a proficiency to falling out of a plane. I'd, I've never skydived. So. Yeah, yeah, there okay. is there there is a there is a flying your body thing. And yeah, I, I did something called relative work RW. Um, it's kind of a dinosaur thing, but you jump out in groups of people and you come together and make formations and you do what they're what you call a dirt dive, 
where you do uh, a choreograph on the ground of what you're going to do. Okay, you and I, if, let's say we're doing it two-way. Okay, we're going to do a poised exit, Crispin, and when we, when we come into and we transition to belly to earth, we're both going to do a 360, and then we're going to come back together, and then you're going to present your legs, your left side, and we're going to do a left-hand donut, and then we're going to go hit. And so you got all yeah. these formations. So that's the deal that you kind of do. And so... Through that, I was able to carry a DOD clearance and jump with the military and really and, wow. and jump all their stuff. I can remember jumping with the Golden Knights out in Yuma, Arizona, at the at the training grounds and getting shut down because it was the day that the the Navy had sunk a Japanese fishing trawler because they had had some civilians at the cowl of this submarine and they had come up and they had hit this Japanese thing and sunk them and then all of a sudden I think it was actually about a week earlier but that's finally when they said okay all civilians out of military vehicles (laughs) yeah yeah I got I got it back but I was grounded for a little while wow so you were able to combine being in Diamond Rio and then skydiving two of your things oh yeah yeah Yeah. and it was great it was great it was absolutely and I've got to you know not only travel the world playing music but a lot of it skydiving wherever i was too not a bad gig jumping into gigs you know and and doing that type of stuff wow (laughs) yeah it was it was it was was, it's you're quite tweaked that sounds kind of spinal tappy you know the guitar is kind of flying into the gig from on high yeah i can remember we did this we did this gig in in uh in South Carolina, right at a at a hot air balloon loft. So they were having all these hot air balloons, and they brought a sky van in, and I was jumping with a bunch of these guys, the Carolina skydivers. And um, I was a kind of a novice skydiver, and we were doing this big demonstration jump into the gig, and they were like, oh, they so took care of me. They put me in the center <laughs> of the exit on this sky van, and they said, okay, see this guy right here? Here's the color of his rig, and when his parachute deploys get on his butt and he's going to take you right to where you you need to land and sure enough man i got on his butt and i followed that canopy on and i was already in my country music uniform anyway i had my jeans and my western shirt on and and i landed right behind this guy where the golf cart was took the rig off drove to stage guitar bang downbeat it was the man oh, i look like a cool. hero out there <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> now I will tell you that my ears were still plugged, you know. But, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had I had permagrin for at least half of the show, just tweaked. Oh heck yeah, yeah. Wow, wow, that's cool. So anyway, we've done that. Uh, being member, being named a member of the of the Grand Old Opry, you know. Yeah. Getting uh, that's cool. We've had we've had quite a few award wins and and stuff like that, and had you know great success as a songwriter and and all these things. It's. Uh, We'd be here all day, kind of remembering those things, you know. But it, it's been it's been amazing. I've had so much more fortune than I, you know. I don't know that I deserve or whatever, but it's it seems very surreal yeah. from time to time, you know. I've I've told I've told Mitch this and, and several of my friends, and my family, that it I can I have to watch myself not to be the obnoxious guy at the party because I've got a relative fantastic story to almost every subject matter that somebody talks yeah. about. Well, that triggers this. And remember when I was so-and-so and blah, 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 blah. And they are interesting stories. But yeah. all of a sudden, before I was about three or four deep, it's like, okay, man. <laughs> Whatever. Hey. <laughs> 
storm and the flood. Though my dreams suffered harm, there's a rock that will not be moved. Though my eyes blur from tears and the cries burn my ears, there's a rock that will not be moved. There's a rock that will not be moved. You're the one that will see me through. Nice. <laughs> Thank you, just love throwing you on a song you've never heard and make me play, but yeah, you, uh, that's good I didn't stuff. Know man. that so <laughs> As I told you when I was a bluegrass banjo player, one of the things that I love about acoustic music and um, playing that is with bluegrass music, a lot of that stuff isn't. Maybe there's more that's written down now, but a lot of that stuff was learned by ear and taught by friends, and that happens with community. Mm-hmm. And when you have acoustic instruments and not electric instruments, the footprint is very small, and you can say, hey, man, bring your instrument over and let's play. Well, I did that, and I that think that's why I fell in love with playing music is because I love to learn and I love to play with other people. I like to do that. Well, a majority of my career has been all of a sudden in a big footprint with you know loading into a studio at a concert venue, electric guitars and drums and all this stuff that just is, that's a big elephant to get moving to show up for 75 minutes, you know, or for a three-hour session or whatever, and I'm still desiring to play with people. So, um, and through that, you know, being a songwriter, being a record producer, being a studio musician, repertoire has fallen by the way. Because in a songwriting session, you write that song, maybe I'm going to demo it, maybe not, but then that song is, I'm done with that song. It's either been cut or we put it on a record yeah. or what, and same thing with a, with a recording. We, we recorded that song. Yeah, I don't know if you had to overdub it, you had to pro tools it, whatever, you had to clean it up, but that thing is done, you move on. So I don't remember those things, yeah. and that's not a part of my repertoire. Uh, but now I'm falling back in love with playing music and playing songs and playing songs with friends and stuff like that. I'm I, I'm a little bit low on repertoire right now, but uh, I'm having you know I'm back in it. Yeah. So so it's good. It's good and it, it's interesting. I've had some interesting opportunities of things that you know I was kind of ready for the task where somebody said, "Hey, can you stop by and play?" You know, for about an hour, and I went. You know, I think I can actually do that where, yeah. you know, at the height of my career with Diamond Rio and the biggest hits, I couldn't have come and played for an hour. I'd be coming, well, I can kick off a bunch of Diamond Rio songs and play some solos. And, you know, if you can imagine somebody singing these songs, yeah. maybe they'd like it. But, you know, it was really kind of, yeah. and I kind of went, man, what happened? I'm a guitar player. And a lot of this came, uh, I remember being at Christmas with my in-laws and I was, I took a guitar because I had some work that I needed to do and I needed to stay in shape as a guitar player when I got back from the Christmas holidays. And I was snuck my acoustic guitar back on the back porch of my in-laws. And, you know, they think, oh, you got the guitar, you're going to put on a show for us or something, right? And I was like, no, I'm just sitting here playing. Well, play me a song. I went, uh, 
and I just started spontaneously composing things that sounded like songs, <laughs> you know, and I can do that, yeah. but I realized, man, I, I can't play you any songs, you know, and she was like, well, you know, can you do like what I've been, my, my father-in-law is a preacher, and so this is my, my mother-in-law, you know, preacher's wife, she said, well, can you play what a friend we have in Jesus, can you do that, I was like, <laughs> I think I can play what a friend we have in Jesus, yeah. but I then none of that stuff would come to me. Wow. So yeah, it's 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 good to have realized that and to be doing that now. Yeah. One last question, or I'm not gonna say last, but um I've got my fourteen year old son here who just started playing guitar oh. five months ago. Is there any and how advice? is that? <laughs> so you know songs, right? Or you know intros or you know parts, right? And you play those stuff and they sound cool to you and they sound cool with the distortion and stuff like that. So what would be, how if you played every day, what do you think you would have to play every day? Would it be a half hour or spread out over the day? Would it be an hour? Would it be 20 minutes, 15 minutes? What do you think it is? You'd probably play at least an hour. An hour. A day. Okay. So if you if you were in the summer probably five or six hours, you know. Five or six hours. Yeah, now he's back in school. It's okay. be less. So. <laughs> okay, which is which is super cool, right? Okay, so the things that you already know that when you pick up and you you know you want a return on your time when you pick up your guitar and the stuff that's fun, I refer to those as your friends. Okay, if you got all your friends and you can pick them up and your friends are awesome, you know. But you need to. I would limit the time that you were you had your friends, or at least pre. Uh, before you get to your friends, I would pick up something that you don't do well, something that you're trying to achieve, something that you need to work on. Okay, so if you, man, I love Jimmy Page, and I wish I knew that. Well, force yourself to, to tune your guitar and start working on the Jimmy Page thing that you want to learn. And, and if, so if it's an hour that you have, do 40 minutes of work and before you touch any friends, and then 20 minutes. And soon, that 40 minutes of work, those are going to slip into your friends category. And that's where development happens. By, pre, by the first thing that you do is, and you do it without distractions, where your, you know, your sister doesn't come into your room, and you don't have your video games going, and you don't noodle while you're watching television, but you go, I'm actually going to do this for 40 minutes. And you do that, and I will tell you that your development will ramp up incredibly and the faster your development goes the faster that that happens and it becomes a steamroller and how old are you now 14. okay 14 man you are like a sponge right now this particular area of development if you can i don't know i'm an old guy i'm not sure if you're going to take this advice but if you actually do this and live this by the time you're 15 by the time you're 16 you'll look back at this conversation and you'll be going i cannot believe what I'm playing now than what I was playing then. And this is the time. This is your time. Good words. Good words. Wish I could have got these words when I was uh, your age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and me too. Yeah. And me too. But, I, you know, I talk, I talk to, to adults because we have less available time. Yeah. Right? It's the biggest and, issue. And it's, man, I don't care what your available time is. Just get that distraction-free, concentrated stuff that does, isn't really returning anything. Do the work. Yeah. And then have fun. 
not just, you know, oh, once I get, you know, have get good and vibey, you know, then I'm going to work on some stuff. Do the stuff first. And yeah. It's good. Well, that's that's from the music part, but you're also a songwriter too. Mm-hmm. What does the songwriting approach look for you? Look like for you? Because um, I know I know that I've I've actually this is only my second time in Nashville after all these years, and my first time was just like two years ago. So I know Nashville's got kind of a different thing on songwriting. It's it's really a songwriting mecca, but it's a it's a little bit different approach so it's a different approach and, and so what is your impression of of how different it is well I, I was actually in a songwriting competition oh probably 15 years ago and they had um our judges were actually professional songwriters from nashville mm-hmm. and, and i won in the competition but i was i was amazed when these guys talk about like it's i mean they're professional songwriters they they work eight hours a day writing songs and it was such a it, it was a very different thing and they said you know you 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 show up, you you meet with a co-songwriter, and you sit down, and you just hammer out an idea, and, and you you treat it like a, a job, and 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 I think that's a very different kind of thing than a lot of people probably outside of Nashville, other than may, maybe L.A. or something. I, I think most most guys that I run into, just like in Louisiana and stuff, it, it songwriting is this, you know, it's this thing you do, and maybe you I get came inspired. up with a tune, and it <laughs> yeah. was and it's cool, and it goes like this. yeah. So yeah. It, it seems like and and. <clears throat> explain how how songwriting is for you ah uh, well you know i'm a co-writer yeah you know i usually co-write with other people i i do some solo stuff but you know i've i've learned writing for years that um what i'm good at and what i'm not good at and i'm a good musician and usually co-writers when when i'll show up at a songwriting session they will assume that I will be doing all the melody and all the chords, and that's actually not what I do very well. Um, my melodies and stuff are generally pedestrian, and well, it sounds like, yeah. Yeah. You ended at, you know, the eighth bar. There you go. It sounds, you know, just like it. And it's just, I learned that, man, I, if I'm going to write with somebody, I really want to make sure that they've got that that magic of, they're either an amazing singer or an amazing player, and they, they're highly melodic. My stuff is all lyric-based and all structure and all content. Okay. So, um, so you know, writing for years, it is. It's an interesting thing, you know, writing with a new co-writer. Um, and, you know, the, the sessions are, are booked, you know, usually it's musician hours, so we're, you know... Uh, you know, high-scale banker hours, whatever, yeah. 10 o'clock yeah. is usually <laughs> when things start. And that means that that starts with a cup of coffee, and that starts with a conversation. And a shot of scotch. A shot of scotch. It, but but it starts in. Um, have you done any co-writes? A, a little. I, I've not done a whole lot, but yeah, a little bit. Okay, so in 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 Nashville right now, um, it's about access. If you're a professional songwriter, okay, so it's about access. So if you're going to like, I really have little desire to write with another fantastic songwriter yeah because i've done that sure and we will do uh we will write a really great song and dig you later and that's you know i'm not going to go perform that song that guy's probably not going to perform that song and that will go into a catalog at a publishing company and so it's not going to see the light of day so it's about access with artists yeah and it's about writing with with artists or the producer of a project because since the the shrinking of the music business uh, people are trying to um, 
make up for lost revenue from lower album sales. So the 360 deal is around. I'm sure you know the 360 deal. Uh, that's the that's the contemporary record deal to where 360 360 degrees of the artist is um, the the record label is taking a piece of publishing, mm. and then you go another few degrees over here, and it's a piece of merchandise, it's a piece piece of your touring stuff, it's a piece of you know whatever, all the yeah. aspects of your career, and so um, they want the artist on every cut. Okay, because they're going to have publishing on every cut. So, wow. So it's, I mean, it's, there's a lot of calculation to this. Yeah. You know, and um, so anyway, it's, it, but, but the process, you know, whether you're with the artist or another songwriter, you know, it starts with a, with a cup of coffee and, and it starts with you, you become uh, comfortable with immediately sharing your life. Yeah. And immediate, and it talks with, you know, what did you do? Like, for instance, what did you do yesterday? I drove seven hours to get here from yeah, Louisiana. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so are you married? I'm married. Yeah. So you married? Married 20 years. Got a son, a daughter. My daughter just started college today. Mm -hmm. Loyola down in New Orleans. And yeah, did church yesterday. Got in the car. Drove all the way down here. Got in about nine o'clock at night. Had a beer. Went to bed. That was my day. <laughs> okay. So, so from our conversation, you know, this is crude. This is not going to happen, yeah. you know. But we may, we may come up with the idea. Did church, had a beer, went to bed. Yeah, you know. So okay. So there's our hook. There's our hit. There's our there's <laughs> there's our deal. But it's going to come out from you know the the conversation will be over an hour. Yeah. Right. And and I'll share with you. But the entire time that you're listening to me, and the entire time I'm listening to you, I'm listening for that. Yeah. Okay, and what is it about that? Now we may have a project that we're writing for. If you, if you're the artist, you know, and I'm coming in, what are what are you? You know, you're closing out an album. What are you looking for? Well, usually everybody's well tempo. I don't have any tempo, and everything that I've heard that people have pitched to me is all bro country, and it's all you know schlocky and sticky. And but I need tempo. I would love to have something that had some oomph to it. You know, so we're that's in the back of our mind. That yeah. we're not going to write a ballad today. You know, whatever went on with your wife and whatever, how come <laughs> you came here to Nashville this weekend? We're, we're not going there. Right, you know, yeah. we're looking for, you know, these things. And so it's, uh, it's interesting. You know, I write with young writers, too, and it's, I made the mistakes, you know. I write with, write with a girl, and, and she's, she's always so dark. And I'm like, you know what? And it's, you know, unless, you know, maybe once in a while yeah. somebody wants to connect with that for, but for the most part, nobody wants to hear that, you know, let's, when you say something dark to me, we're going to have to spin it, yeah. you know, uh, and, and, you know, kind of, you have to learn those things and you have to learn also, you know, the country music formula, uh, with radio and with less revenue and stuff like that. Ad space per hour on country radio has gone down as long as I've been doing this. It continues to get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, which means that the songs, you know, you used to be able to get away with a song that was over four minutes, maybe four and a half minutes, yeah. and then it went, it's got to be below four, and then it's got to be hitting right around three. You know, it's a three-minute song, and, you know, if it's 2.30, that feels weird. So you got this magic thing right about three, which means that the chorus, you don't need to do a double verse. I don't care how prolific you are. Yeah. You don't need to do a double verse in the fact because, you know, it's get to the chorus. Yeah. 
You know, what is it? Get to the chorus, stupid. That's like, yeah. the, that's the big mantra, you know, and that chorus usually hits around a minute. Wow. Yeah. You know, you've got an intro. Let's chop the intro in half. Do this verse, set it up, hit to the chorus. We're going to hit the, you know, hit the hook twice in this thing. Turn around. No, let's, let's do a half a turnaround, get to the second verse, you know, hit the chorus again, a bridge. And, and it's formulaic. It's formulaic for a reason. Yeah. It's formulaic because people read People magazine and people yeah. watch half-hour shows and, and they're conditioned to, they want this gratification, you know. Um, I'm not ashamed of it. I've learned how to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and now, when I try to be artsy-fartsy, dude, I'm hitting that chorus in a minute, you know. <laughs> yeah. I haven't got those chops. <laughs> yeah. Well... Could, would, would it be okay with you if we uh, maybe jammed around on a couple songs? Yeah. Just, okay. Yeah. I mean, I think we that would be got, We're going to torture thing. your listeners with a little banjo. Yeah, Is we that could, what we're going to do? I think that would be cool. You know, we can talk about music yeah. all day, but I think it'd be probably a little bit more interesting. It, okay, that's, that's something that I learned in my career. Okay, yes. So we're talking about relationships and career, yeah. mostly. We're not yeah. talking about, I got a little bit off on the flat five yeah. and the seven yeah. and stuff like that. When we started, we were one of the folks, we had, we're the first band to have a number one debut single. And we play it, and we were also in uh, Cookie Cutter Country Music, where a band would get signed to a record deal, deal, but the lead singer was the only person that was on the album, and it was a studio band. And this is common practice. It was, they knew that this album budgets could be done like this. Well, we came in, we played all the stuff on our record. And uh, we were very proud of that. And some, that's possibly why stuff sounded different yeah. when we came out. Um, well, in interview, we so wanted to talk about music and that, that stuff. <laughs> and dude, they wanted to talk about, you know, your hair looks cool. And it, <laughs> music is like not interesting to talk about. Yeah. It's interesting to listen to, you know. And I learned that lesson. I was like, oh, man, but I really wanted to talk about all this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shut up and play the song. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm going to press stop here, and we will move into the next feature. Well, we had a whole lot more of this interview, and jamming that we did in the studio. And I, I tell you, this was a... For my second time in Nashville to get to hang out with uh, such a great guy and a talented musician like Jimmy O was really made for an awesome day. Woke up, got to jam in the studio, see an eclipse, and then have a shrimp boil, then head back to Louisiana. So it was like the best Monday ever. And uh, I think it was really cool for my son to be with me on this. And uh, as a father and a musician, I, I just could see my, my boy lighting up, uh, getting to play Jimmy's uh, B-Bender. may put some of these videos on our Facebook page, so you can do that. Uh, Jimmy O has some YouTube videos. If you'd like to see his work on the B-Bender, uh, check out Jimmy O on the Jimmy O Show on YouTube. And there's lots of cool videos where you can see him playing the B-Bender that he talked about. So if you didn't understand what was going on, uh, you need to kind of witness it. Uh, phenomenal musician there. Well, Extra Crispy is produced by myself. Uh, intro and outro music 
is composed by me, as well as a little music in there. The rest of the recordings you hear, the live recordings, are just kind of jamming in the studio there. Uh, one of those songs called Not Be Moved. Uh, wrote right after Hurricane Katrina, and it's kind of coming back right now with all the stuff happening in Houston with Hurricane Harvey, and so we're going to actually, probably the next episode of Extra Crispy, I'm going to be interviewing some folks that are working in hurricane relief and spotlighting some maybe lesser known people that are doing some really good things to help out the community down there, so that'll be in the next episode, but for now, may all your conversations be Extra Crispy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.